Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll, kiss. I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by T, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, and domestic and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They will keep the politics in this podcast and out of our energy industry. And boy, wouldn't that be nice. Now, if you want to learn more about the Empowerment Alliance, what they're fighting for, support the work they're doing, please visit teoggn.org. Again, that is Tango Echo Alpha Oscar Golf Golf November.org. And there'll be a link in the show notes. And I can tell you, these guys are incredibly passionate about promoting American energy independence. And I hope you'll check them out, show them a little bit of love and some appreciation for helping make this show possible. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive ATM of reckless opinion. So grab yourselves a cup of coffee and let's get into it. First order of business, a thank you to Joe, who left a very kind comment on the Apple podcast apps for the show, and a five-star review. Thank you so much. That's greatly appreciated. All right, let's talk about our main piece for this evening, what we've got going on here. Oh, and yes, obviously, as per tradition, I've got myself a nice dark roast here, which I'll be sipping on. It is a Saturday night when I'm recording, and I have uh, thrown a little splash of Italian cream in there. You know, just have a little fun. It's Saturday night. That's what you do. You talk politics, geopolitically, and you have some Italian cream in your coffee. So there we are. Hopefully, you got a nice tasty beverage with you wherever you were at when you were listening to this. Okay, so what's happened? Well, big thing we're going to talk about tonight, the thing that everyone is obviously riveted on the edge of their seats, ready to discuss, is the 2023 Turkish elections. I know, I know. You didn't think I knew you were thinking about that, but I did, and we're going to talk about it tonight and why we obviously all care about it. But before we get to that, we do have to address the biggest, most pressing issue happening in Turkey right this second, that is obviously the horrific earthquake which has occurred on February 6th. For those of you that don't know, in case you've missed it somehow in the news cycle, there was a massive 7.8 magnitude earthquake on February 6th that had over 1,000 aftershocks, including a 7.7 aftershock some nine hours after the initial earthquake. The death toll has been absolutely catastrophic. No two ways around it. As of the time of this recording, there are 22,000 confirmed dead in Turkey and another 5,000 confirmed dead in Syria. And man, Syria just cannot catch a break right now. That's the last thing they needed. But those numbers are horrific. And on a side note, my heart goes out to all the folks who have family over there or that are over there right now dealing with this. That is a terrible tragedy, and I'm very sorry for all of that. Nothing I can say is going to make that any better, but you got to acknowledge it, and it is truly, truly horrific. You may be wondering how those kind of numbers 
could happen in an earthquake. And we will get into that here in a second, but there is just a bit more bad news, unfortunately, and that is that, at least as of this writing, that death toll is likely to go up, and that's because there is freezing winter weather coming in, and the response by emergency services has been unfortunately a bit slow, at least at the federal level. I know the local folks are doing the best they can with what they've got, but it is assumed that a lot of the folks that are still buried in the rubble are probably not going to make it through the cold before they get dug out, and that's terrible. So, question you might be asking is, why is this so bad? Why is the death's toll so high? Well, that neck of the woods is sitting at a convergence of three different tectonic plates. You've got the Anatolian plate, the Arabian plate, and the African plate that all kind of hinge together right there. So you get a fair amount of earthquake activity in that neighborhood. In fact, the last big one they had was in 1999, the Izmit earthquake, which was pretty bad also, but not nearly to the scale of this one. And at that time, Turkey had actually passed a series of laws to try and make buildings safer and more earthquake resistant so you wouldn't have these kind of problems. And in this case, you had a lot of buildings that just couldn't withstand the forces that collapsed, a lot of high rises with lots of people in them. And that's why you have the kind of numbers you're seeing. So there are two big things that Turkey did to deal with this. They imposed a set of building construction codes that you had to build buildings in accordance with or upgrade existing buildings that would make them more resilient. It had to have higher quality concrete, higher quality steel, steel built in certain ways at certain key points of the building to kind of prevent this kind of thing from happening. And also they did a tax, an earthquake tax, I believe it was on all the phone bills basically, and all the money collected to that was supposed to go to a fund specifically to handle the next big earthquake event. Now, you can imagine, because I'm talking about it, it probably hasn't really worked out the way it was supposed to, and you'd be right. So two things. One, you've got this tax on the phone bills for earthquakes. That raked in something to the tune of around $5 billion over the past 20 years. Seems like a lot of jingle. Another at this point, so far from what I can tell, undisclosed amount of billions of dollars has been collected over another earthquake-related source of revenue, and that was construction amnesty taxes. So, here's how it worked. If you were building a building, you had to build it to these codes. If you didn't build it to these codes, then you were required to pay for an amnesty certificate, which would allow you to build a building however the hell you wanted, not up to code, but you paid the special amnesty tax for it. Since 2000, how many buildings do you think have been built getting an amnesty certificate? The past 20 years, and I'm talking just in the 10-county region, the 10, I don't know what Turkey calls their little subdivisions, but we'll call them counties, states, whatever you want to call it, in that that area of Turkey where this earthquake expected, how many buildings do you think got built with this special amnesty certificate? A few hundred, few thousand would be probably a safe guess. Try this one. 70 thousand buildings have gone up with an amnesty construction certificate. 70,000 in the past 20 years, just in that region alone. And so what you are seeing, the death toll you're seeing, is because all these buildings were built, not able to withstand what just happened. And these guys, rather than actually taking the time to build them properly, just said, fuck it, we'll pay a little extra on this tax and we'll call it a day. And now tens of thousands of people are dead. To make matters worse, the money for all these emergency response resources and people at the federal level that were supposed to be available, the government's not really sure where that money is at. They can't really account for it. They've just sort of shrugged and said, eh, we don't know. Fascinating, right? That's pretty interesting. Now, 
I'm also going to just throw this out there that in the past 20 years, in fact, in the past 10 years, President Erdogan of Turkey has built a thousand room, six or seven hundred million dollar presidential palace for himself in that time. Now, I don't have any proof that any of that money wound up helping pay for this. So I'm not saying that President Erdogan used money from this in order to make that palace happen. I'm also not not saying that. And what I will say is weird. Hmm. Interesting timing. But purely could just be coincidence. I certainly don't know. Now, why this is relevant is because President Erdogan is receiving a lot of blowback right now over his handling of the crisis that's happening. And this is especially important because elections are going to happen this year for the presidency. And believe it or not, we, as an industry, should be kind of interested in seeing how this election goes, because there's been a lot happening on the periphery in Turkey in the oil and gas sector that's very interesting. And we're going to get to that here as we go on. So first off, let's just cover a few of the baseline areas where things have gone a little off the rails with Erdogan's response to all this. So first off, we have the missing money. No one knows where the fuck that's at. Cool. Missing money in a government budget on the planet Earth. I know. Shocking. Shocking. But also, it took days. It took two days before President Erdogan managed to mobilize the military to go help with the rescue efforts. And you may be saying, why the military? Well, because in most countries, U.S. included, that's why you always get the National Guard out, the military has a lot of manpower lying around. They are oftentimes able to drop what they're doing and go respond to something like this because they're not in a massive ground war with somebody. And also military forces in general have a lot of logistical capability available to them that most of the time, if you're not engaged in a big war, is available to help with this sort of thing. So you would think that would have been one of the first calls they made. God knows whenever we have a national disaster in the U.S., the first thing the president does is mobilize the reserves and the governors do the National Guard and We get military forces in there to help clear things out and assist. Two days it took of this massive ordeal before those guys got mobilized over there. The other thing that's really interesting is President Erdogan ordered Twitter to be blocked for 12 hours during this crisis. And this is interesting for two reasons. The reason that he wanted Twitter shut down during this period of time is because too many people were criticizing the government about how they were handling the crisis. Too many folks in Turkey were saying, hey, where's all the money for this? Where's all the resources for this that we're paying a lot of taxes on? Where is it? And why hasn't the military gotten here to help us? And rather than actually sitting down and focusing on figuring out whatever was happening with that, Erdogan said, you know, what we need to do is we need to shut down Twitter for about 12 hours because I'm tired of hearing that noise. Okay, we'll deal with this when we deal with it. We're going to shut down Twitter. The reason this also is interesting, the second reason is because Local police and firefighters were using Twitter to communicate with survivors in the rubble to try and find where they were at and dig them out. And when Twitter shut down, the best method they had for communicating with survivors in the wreckage was lost to them because the president decided to turn it off, which I think we can agree, kind of a dick move, okay? But here we are. That's where we're at right now. Now, If you're saying that sounds pretty outrageous, yeah, and that's only just the start of it. So, let's talk about President Erdogan for a minute. If you're wondering why it is that this is going to be something, how this relates to oil and gas, and I'm going to loosely tie it in there like I always do because I'm a professional, here's the deal. 
In the past 20 years since Erdogan has come into power, there has been a very noticeable shift in Turkish politics away from the U.S. and more towards Russia. And this has become more and more disturbing. Our relationship with Turkey has hit several rock-bottom lows over the past 20 years, and the signs of it getting better are not really there. The other thing is that under Erdogan, Turkey has become more and more draconian in policy, and I'm going to deep dive into that here in just a second. But the bottom line is there have been a lot of things that aren't looking promising for folks that like to see a strong, healthy democracy. And it's really too bad because historically, Turkey in the past 40 years or so, prior to Erdogan coming to power, was considered to be kind of the model of what a predominantly Islamic democracy could look like. And there were a lot of reasons for this. Now, it wasn't perfect, obviously, but there were a lot of good things. It was a hardcore secular society. There was to be no religion in any kind of government capacity. Yes, it was a majority uh, Muslim country, but the government was not supposed to have any kind of religious anything. Christian, Muslim, didn't matter. Supposed to be hardcore secular. And this was even enforced in a pretty big way by the military. If the military thought you were getting too much religion involved in governance, the military would actually jump in and actually physically take people out of office. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a great thing, but it's very interesting that that was sort of the relief valve in Turkish politics over the past half century to keep things on the non-religious straightened level. And it's been hailed by many people, or was at one point, as sort of, hey, man, this is really what Afghanistan and Iraq and a lot of these countries ought to be striving to accomplish. The problem is this has begun to backslide quite a bit since Erdogan came to power. And we'll talk a little bit about that now. So keep in mind, Erdogan originally was a country boy from just outside of uh, Istanbul. He eventually managed to make his way into parliament, and he even managed to get himself elected as the mayor of Istanbul, which is the largest city in Turkey, although not the capital. That's Ankara, I believe it is. At any rate, he was the mayor of the largest city. And in fact, he did a lot of good as the mayor. He was considered to be a very conscientious mayor. He was very interested in making the city better. He improved the roads. Funnily enough, there was a big pollution problem in Istanbul, and he solved that pollution problem by switching their power from, and you're going to love this, from predominantly coal-based to natural gas, which cut back on the pollution in the air significantly. So yeah, how about that? He's a big fan of natural gas. We like that, don't we? Well, anyway, he eventually gets himself arrested as mayor and even thrown in jail. He was given a, I think it was a 12 or 18 month sentence, but he only served four months of it. But he got, and I mean, this is how hard ass Turkey was. He was at a public event in Istanbul, maybe just outside of Istanbul, but he was at a public event as the mayor and he read an Islamic poem that referenced Islam in some sort of a way, you know, the fight of the faithful and that kind of a thing. He read a poem. He didn't call for a jihad or do anything crazy. He just read a poem at this public event as the mayor and he got arrested and charged with bringing too much religion into governance and got literally put in jail for a number of months. That's how hard-ass they were about that. Yet you, you keep your church out of the state. They are not fucking around, as they say. So, absolutely fascinating. At any rate, he gets out, and it was such a hard-ass rule that even once he got out, he could not serve in a public office as far as like president, prime minister, mayor again. 
he was able to get back into his political party and he was able to get, I believe, back into a seat in parliament, but he could not serve as president at all. And we'll talk about how we got there here in a second. But at any rate, that's sort of what we're up against here is, is they were very big into not having any kind of religion in the government. And that's how they kept things in Turkey more or less going along. Well, the situation with Turkey and the U.S. got a little bit strained over the past two decades. First off, when Bush was building his coalition of the willing to go into Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, or specifically Iraq, in 2003, Turkish parliament actually voted against it because they didn't want to become involved in a Middle East conflict that they were worried was going to spiral out of control. So they actually voted against it. That being said, there was the Hood event, which was basically two weeks after the fall of Baghdad, there were a dozen Turkish special forces who were captured by U.S. military in Iraq who were evidently planning on trying to assassinate the Kurdish governor of Kirkuk. And there is a big, hairy deal conflict between the Kurds and the Turks. And I'm not even going to go into that because it is so much more massive than I have the room to deal with in this episode. But if you want me to do a deep dive on it later on, shoot me an email and let me know. And by the way, if you ever do want to throw an idea out, at some point we're going to have a form on the website where you can reach out and throw out ideas, things you want me to discuss. But until that goes live, you can hit me up on my email at OGGN. It's jordan.driscoll at OGGN.com. And if you've got any things that you want me to render an opinion on or talk about or think I'm doing wrong or right or whatever, by all means, please send me the feedback. At any rate, that was sort of the start of relations between the U.S. and Turkey going downhill. And at this time, the president of Turkey basically pardoned Erdogan, allowing him to serve in high government office. And he became prime minister in office he held from the early 2000s to the early 20-teens when he was actually elected as president. Now, understand that up until recently, Turkey has been what is considered a parliamentary democracy. So it's a little bit more in common with, like, say, the Great Britons and the Canadas of the world than it is a U.S.-style democracy. And while I'm a nerd and I find this very interesting, I will just gloss over some very quick details. In that kind of a democracy, there is a difference between what the president does versus what the prime minister does. Think of the president as sort of the chairman of the board. Very big picture, sort of the masthead, the national identity of the organization, and the prime minister is the one actually doing most of the day-to-day making stuff happen, most of the day-to-day running of the legislative branch. And the president was sort of more of a stronger than a figurehead, but not – they sort of divided up the roles. You know, it's – you have a head of state, which is what the president was who handled – going out and having public conversations with people and all of that and doing the goodwill tours and meeting with other nations and sort of broad picture strategy for the nation. And then the prime minister was the actual head of government who handled things like moving legislation and running the cabinet and all of that. This will become important later on, trust me. And it goes back that we had some concerns about Erdogan as far back as 2004. There were leaked diplomatic cables from the U.S. ambassador to Turkey, which said, and I quote, He's a perfectionist workaholic who sincerely cares for the well-being of those around him, but also, quote, he has little understanding of politics beyond Ankara, the capital. And he was said to be surrounded with, quote, an iron ring of sycophantic but contemptuous advisors fearful of his wrath. Now, this guy is prime minister, and he's in office, like I said, for give or take 10 years in that office as prime minister before he gets himself elected as president. 
The problem is, the longer he was in office, the more he began to bring his religious beliefs, his very conservative Islamic religious beliefs, more to the forefront. He's made comments about how he thinks that people should be wearing headscarves in public, women specifically, and how they need to really reinforce the fact that Turkey is an Islamic state rather than a secular state. And this has caused a lot of friction with people in Turkey and elsewhere in the world that are concerned that this is going to lead to a tricky situation. I mean, we know there are some Islamic states that are publicly so and not that big of a problem. Take Jordan, for example. It's been pretty much peaceful. Then you've got ones that are a little bit more tricky to deal with, like, say, oh, I don't know, Iran. So, yeah, seeing another country kind of slide down that path does make some people nervous. There have been a number of Turkish folks who have literally had very strong concerns about this. At any rate, during his time in office, he has begun moving away from U.S.-focused foreign policy to more Russian-focused foreign policy because he believes he'll get a better deal there. One of the things that he engaged with was, and this was just a few years ago in 2019, Turkey, of course, has been a member of NATO since 1952. And that's great. And they were one of the founding members that were involved in the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter program. But in 2019, as they're getting ready to take ownership of these fighters that are being built, they wanted to buy a missile defense system. And Russia convinced them to buy the S-400 missile defense system, which is the new export missile system that Russia has been pimping. And Irgen really liked it and wanted to have a piece of that. The problem is, they're a NATO country, and there were a lot of people in NATO, and especially in the U.S. military, that said, we don't think we're comfortable with you buying a Russian missile defense system and then plugging it into the NATO defensive network. We think that's a problem. He, of course, said, we're going to do it anyways. Fuck you. It's our money. We can do what we want. So the U.S. came back and said, okay, listen, it's one or the other. You either get the F-35 or you go get your Russian missiles, but you're not plugging them into the NATO network, and if you buy them, you're not, we're not going to sell you the F-35. And this was actually something that Congress, in a bipartisan fashion, put their foot down on in 2019. And so he chose the S-400 missile system from Russia. And now he's been involved in conversations about buying Russian Su, I guess, 52 or whatever it is, fighter, the new Russian fighter that they're trying to produce. Anyway, the reason that we should be worried is because there is this big shift, Right. And the longer he's in office, the more pronounced that shift has become. And while we're talking about it, let's talk about kind of the more immediate factor that hits the oil and gas side of things. And that is, of course, the Ukraine war. So under Erdogan, he has made the decision that he is going to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, right? Cool. Yeah, almost everyone has. In fact, I think I've met one person that's actually on Russia's side in this thing, which kind of throws me. But anyway beside the point. So he's condemned it publicly, but he won't join in on sanctions. He will not sanction Russia. And so what's happened is while everybody's putting these price caps for refusing to buy or embargoing Russian oil and natural gas, Erdogan is actually buying it at rock bottom prices from Russia and buying globs and globs and globs of it because Turkey has a huge refinery base. So they're buying all this Russian oil and gas that's supposed to be embargoed off the market to hurt Russia. They're refining it and then they are putting a Made in Turkey sticker on it to get around the sanctions. And so right now, Erdogan is selling huge amounts of Russian-produced oil and natural gas to the world 
which of course is financially helping Russia and also getting around those sanctions. And he showed no sign of having any interest in changing that. And the Turkish economy has been kind of in the toilets for the past several years, ever since 2018. So Erdogan is unapologetically doing this. I mean, he's just like, yep, don't care. We're going to do it. Yeah, it's bad that they're invading Ukraine, but fuck it. We're just going to bring you this oil and gas on the cheap and we're going to resell it and that's fine. So that's where this ties into the oil and gas industry, where it's a problem because one, he's way too close to Russia. And of course, we all know Russia being part of OPEC plus and all these other things. That's a big problem. He's helping them get around the sanctions. This is going to be a big issue. And the problem is Russia not unlike China, is building kind of a coalition of allies. And having a member of NATO getting that far afield, going that far against the grain of what our policies are as as an alliance, and even, frankly, things that we want as the United States, is a bit worrying. And to top it all off, the guy's a bit of a douchebag, okay? We're just going to be blunt about it. Let me give you a few examples of that. So, I'll introduce you to Article 299 of the Turkish Penal Code. It is illegal to insult the president of Turkey. You can't do it. You can, but you'll go to jail for it. And I don't mean like they'll threaten you with it. I mean they will send you to jail. Since 2014, since Erdogan has become the president of Turkey, 14,000 prison sentences have been issued under this code. And I'm going to give you a few really wild examples of this, okay? The Miss Turkey beauty contestant, she posted an anti-Erdogan poem on Instagram, jail sentence. A doctor liked a photo on Facebook of Erdogan comparing him to Gollum from Lord of the Rings, prison sentence. So first off, if you've ever seen a picture of Erdogan, he just looks like fucking Gollum, okay? It's just the objective truth, all right? A doctor liked it, straight to jail, okay? Another woman spent 3.5 years in prison for commenting on a photo of Erdogan and Putin saying that they looked like they were, quote-unquote, fluttering from corridor to corridor together in the presidential palace, I guess insinuating that maybe they were having an affair. Evidently, President Erdogan did not like that. Three and a half years in jail for that woman. A 13-year-old was arrested for posting on Facebook that if Erdogan came to his house, he would not serve him tea. Which, by the way, I don't know a lot of 13-year-olds, But I know enough 13-year-olds to know that that is the nicest thing that a 13-year-old can say online. I just won't serve him tea if he comes over. That is the best thing a 13-year-old can say on the internet. And this kid, arrested. That's concerning, right? And to get an idea of the economic situation in Turkey, their inflation is currently sitting at about 80%. They import 99% of their natural gas and they import 93% of their crude oil. So there is a big, big situation here. There's a big opportunity, I would even say, for business in Turkey, but it's not going to happen as long as this guy's in office. As long as this guy's in office, it's a big, big opportunity for Mother Russia, okay? So Erdogan is problematic. And with elections coming up, this is a big chance to see a dramatic shift in Turkish foreign policy. Again, we are at an all-time low in our relations with them, which is problematic. And under Erdogan, there have been a lot of other very troubling shifts from the Turkish government. I'll give you an example. So Turkey, as I mentioned before, was a parliamentary republic. And after he became elected as president, he fought very strongly to change the Turkish government from a parliamentary republic to a executive presidential republic with a stronger executive branch. And 
On the surface of it, that doesn't sound too bad, but he pushed for a huge set of constitutional reforms, which were voted on in 2018. And these constitutional reforms were wild. On the surface, they didn't look all that bad. You know, change the government from a parliamentary system to a presidential system. Doesn't sound bad. I mean, hell, we've got one in the U.S. How bad can it be, right? (laughs) Well, his constitutional reform package had some very fascinating stuff in there. And it did pass. Probably. Okay, so here's the deal. There were people brought in from Germany to check on the elections. There were a lot of media... There was a lot of eyes on this referendum, and there was a lot of consensus the referendum was probably not entirely legitimate. Among other things, just to give you an example, they had something like 1.5 million ballots that were found that were pro Erdogan and his referendum for changing the government, but they were not officially stamped by a polling place. They weren't officially stamped ballots, and he decided we're going to go ahead and count those. That's fine. That's fine. You want to talk about, and I mean, 1.5 million ballots that are unofficial, but you quote-unquote find them, and they're all for your side, and we're going to say, yeah, the rule is we're going to count that. Also, because of that Article 299 that I mentioned where it's illegal to insult the president, people that campaigned against changing the government to make Erdogan have greater executive powers were arrested because by saying he shouldn't have them was insulting the president. So there was a huge amount of shutdown of anybody that argued against this because that's an insult to the president. I mean, this is crazy shit, right? And this is not a guy we want over there at this very strategic location getting cozier and cozier with our boy Vladimir Putin. But here we are. At any rate, the referendum narrowly passes. It's something like a 51 to 49% pass and... It is said that if you had taken out that 1.5 million just magic ballots, we'll call them, then it actually would have gone the other direction. They would have lost. Erdogan says, hey, it still counts. It's good. It's fine. We won. We're changing the government. So what do these changes to the government entail? Well, one, it completely eliminates the office of prime minister and gives all the prime minister's powers to the president, which is the office that conveniently Erdogan holds right now. Furthermore, it takes away parliamentary oversight or approval for various different offices and makes them serve at the pleasure of the president. Every member of the cabinet, every judge, every whatever is now appointed by the president. And I want you to just think about that for a second. Imagine if President Biden had the power to fire Kamala Harris. No kind of impeachment process, no oversight, nothing. Now, I know there's a segment of you guys listening to this that are cheering at the thought of that. Okay, I'll give you your moment. Enjoy that for a second. Now, President Biden's fired Kamala Harris. Cool, right? Yeah, that's good. Now, with no oversight, he gets to appoint Hunter Biden as the new vice president. Oh, yes. That's the level of power we're talking about and how outrageously bad it is. Think about it. This guy can now basically just fire any judge in the country and appoint whoever he wants with zero check on that. Parliament no longer has the power to actually investigate the executive branch of the government of Turkey. That's illegal now under the new constitutional changes. So that's some crazy shit. It is so bad that in 2020, Volkswagen, a company that was literally founded by the Nazi party, said, this is getting too authoritarian. We're moving out and we're not going to open a new plant in Turkey. When the Hitler mobile company says that you're too authoritarian for them to stay in the neighborhood, that's what you call a red flag. 
Okay, not a great sign. But this is what we're dealing with. And in fact, there's been a lot of pushback. There was in 2016, which actually is what triggered this whole constitutional referendum and attempted military coup. Because as I said before, the military has historically been kind of the relief valve of whenever somebody got too out of line, the military would step in and take them out and try and set things right. I'm not saying that's a good idea. It's just a curiosity of the Turkish government in the past five decades. But the military coup failed, Erdogan stayed in power, and then pushed for all these special emergency powers like he's fucking Emperor Palpatine in order to enhance the power of the executive office. And he's thus far pulled it off. The real question is going to be, will he get reelected as president? And will the election be fair, which is an entirely other issue that we have to worry about? He's already said that if he loses, that means the election's rigged, which is, I love that. We love that. That's good. I'm glad we're always playing that card. But we really, really don't want this guy staying in office because at the end of the day, for us collectively as an industry and even for our relationship as a country and as NATO with Turkey, this guy is going to become more and more of a problem. Theoretically, he shouldn't even be allowed to continue serving since there are term limits, but the constitutional changes he made enables him to actually just stay in office for another resets everything he gets to go back in again. So... That's the situation with Turkey and the presidency of Turkey right now. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Now, the elections are thought to be starting sometime in May, but the president gets to decide when this year the elections are, and so he's got a lot of lads. Because, of course, why wouldn't the president get to decide when elections are? That's how fucking democracy works, isn't it? This is going to be an interesting situation to watch. And there are a lot of oil and gas ramifications with Russia's Blue Stream pipelines running through there. Now that Russia is starting to invest even more in the oil and gas industry in Turkey, and they're using them as a funnel point for getting around sanctions, there's a huge amount of implications for all of us that are going to hinge on all things the next Turkish election. Yeah, I know. I know. Makes perfect sense. Either way, this is what we have to look forward to. So imagine that we will be getting a uh, part two on this once that election happens, and we'll be discussing it. Hopefully, I won't get arrested under Article 299 for insulting the president of Turkey, which you would think wouldn't be very likely since I'm in America. But the last time a German person insulted him, he actually petitioned the government, and I very nearly got the person exported due to a loophole in German law where they had to honor this Turkish look crazy. But anyway, hopefully you won't get me. Either way, there you go. That's our program for this evening. Hope you found it fascinating. And I just want to remind you all, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that according to Article 299 of the Turkish Penal Code, it might be a crime to insult me. See you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.